Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host for today's uh, debate uh, on the subject, a government thumb on the election scale. Um, next Monday, the Supreme Court will hear a pair of consolidated cases, uh, McComish uh, v. Bennett, which uh, came up from Arizona f by the Goldwater Institute, and Arizona Free Enterprise Club's Freedom Club PAC v. Bennett uh, from the Institute for Justice uh, right over here in Virginia. And those cases have been consolidated for oral argument next Monday. Uh, today we have uh, Nick Dranius from the uh, Goldwater Institute uh, uh, speaking on behalf of these cases, and uh, he'll be uh, joined by David Gans, who is speaking on the other side of the issue. The Goldwater Institute has uh, partnered with the Institute for Justice to bring an end to the use of matching funds as part of the Arizona Citizens Clean Elections Act. Narrowly passed by voters in 1998, the act uses taxpayer money as an attempt to level the financial playing field between candidates for state offices. Uh, the um, <clears throat> U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear the arguments, as I said, on Monday. Here's how the provision in the act works. If a privately funded candidate raises or spends money beyond a specific limit, an unelected state commission gives approximately the same amount of taxpayer money to all publicly funded opponents. In addition, if a person or group makes an independent expenditure in favor of a privately financed candidate, the commission also gives the same amount of money to all opponents funding their campaigns with tax dollars. In effect, the state government is using public money to dilute the political speech of one group and promote the political speech of another. In January 2010, U.S. District Court Judge Rosalind Silver ruled the matching funds portion of the Clean Elections Act violated the First Amendment and issued an injunction against it. The Citizens Clean Elections Commission appealed this decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which declared the scheme constitutional. In a rare and unusual move, however, the Supreme Court stayed the Ninth Circuit's decision and reinstated the injunction against matching funds. And that is the status of the case now and the status of it as we go before the Supreme Court next Monday. Let me now introduce uh, Nick Dranius, our first speaker, and then before he speaks, I'll introduce David Gans. Nick Dranius holds the Clarence J. and Catherine P. Duncan Chair for Constitutional Government and is director of the Joseph and Dorothy Donnelly Moeller Center for Constitutional Government at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Prior to joining the Goldwater Institute, he was an attorney with the Institute for Justice. Nick has authored numerous articles, including Pass the Pall of Orthodoxy, which challenges bar admissions restrictions, limiting the practice of law to graduates of ABA-accredited law schools. And Consideration as Contract was published in the spring 2008 edition of the Texas Review of Law and Politics. He's also the author of The Land of 10,000 Lakes Drowns Entrepreneurs in Regulations, a study that shows how regulations block the path to the American dream and how those barriers can be removed. His latest work, Citizens United versus 
Federal Election Commission, a case for limiting campaign finance regulations, defends the Supreme Court's recent decision to protect campaign spending by corporations and other associations of individuals as essential to protecting free speech. Nick is a graduate cum laude from Boston University with a BA in economics and philosophy. In law school, he served on the Loyola University Chicago Law Review, competed in Loyola's National Labor Law Moot Court team, and received various academics awards. Please rec uh, welcome Nick Gradenius. Well, first of all, thank you, uh, Roger, for inviting me out here to speak. Uh, it's, good to, it's good to be in D.C., and I had hoped to be here to uh, argue the case on, on Monday. And unfortunately, the, the Supreme Court uh, refused to divide argument on Friday, and, uh, and my luck uh, did not win the, toy, the coin toss. So instead, you get to hear my oral argument. Uh, my good friend and colleague at the Institute for Justice, uh, Bill Maher, is going to be arguing on Monday. We're doing everything we can to make sure that he's uh, uploading everything that I might say on the issue, and he's been working day and night. So, you know, as bad as I feel, you know, at least I'm not working every day and all night long. Um, let me ask you this, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands. If some of you were going to start a, a burger shop, let's say a, a McDonald's, and, and you knew that for every dollar you invested in your, your burger shop, the government would pay a dollar to your competitor, Burger King, right across the street. So if you put a dollar into your kitchen, they'd put a dollar into their kitchen. If you put a dollar into your hamburgers, they put a dollar into their hamburgers. If you increased wages for your employees, they put a dollar towards their wages, tit for tat. How many of you would still be willing to open up a burger shop under that circumstance? How many of you would feel utterly uninhibited in your freedom to, uh, to produce burgers and to run that business? Well, obviously, without the show of hands, one must conclude that that's a pretty powerful deterrent. And the same is absolutely true of matching funds. Arizona's matching funds trigger system doesn't operate in a debate club. The purpose of an election is to be elected. There is a winner and there is a loser. And the reason why people run for elections and spend money and raise money is to win elections. So when the government goes into an electoral contest and says to those who want to exercise their First Amendment rights to raise and spend money to project their message, that unless you file a trigger report and cause your opponent to get matched dollar for dollar nearly, every dollar you spend, you can't spend a dollar. That is a powerful deterrent for a candidate who wants to win an election that chills their speech. It's not something a rational candidate can ignore. And in fact, one of the things that has grown out of our litigation is the mythology that Arizona's matching fund system does not chill or does not deter speech. It is a complete and utter falsehood. Unfortunately, repeated by the Ninth Circuit in overturning the permanent injunction on the matching fund system, that Arizona's triggered matching fund system does not stifle speech. It clearly does. The evidence in this case involved 10 non-party witnesses along with a half a dozen party witnesses, along with 
67 interviewed or surveyed candidates in a peer-reviewed article, all saying that the threat, the knowledge, the prospect of triggering a dollar-for-dollar -dollar match in a competitive electoral context has a chilling effect, and it causes candidates to do several things. Some candidates will simply not spend money. For example, John McComish, one of the people I represent, decided not to run a robocall that would have cost him some 2500 bucks because he knew he had three opposing publicly financed candidates who would each get nearly a dollar-for-dollar dollar match. So he would have nearly three to one dollars being spent against him for him to spend that money. So he decided not to spend it. Others, such as Tony Bowie, another of my clients, decided that it didn't make any sense to spend money for the, first couple of, for the last couple of weeks of the election because he'd be feeding his enemies. So he held all of his speech pretty much into the last few days of the election, and then he launched his spending in just a handful of days, making sure that the money triggered to his opposition would arrive there too late to be effective. Now, I want you to step back and think about these two deterrent effects. One is a shutdown on speech. The other is a delay in speech and forcing it into a compressed time. The Arizona clean election system is justified on the argument that somehow it creates more voices, more speech. But the reality is, is it shuts down anybody who has a rational strategy and is raising private money and spending private money. And for those that delay their spending to the last minutes of the election, it compresses into a very short time frame all of the ideas that are going to be debated to a point where there's just a flood. It's sort of like drinking out of out of a fire hose for the public. So the reality is, not only are, ca are candidates being stifled in their speech, not only are they being deterred and delayed in their speech, but aside from a lot of money being spent on the government-funded candidate side, there is no better debate. There is not a more robust debate. There is not more time to understand the ideas because of the ways that candidates respond to these disincentives to speak. So this decision, or this case, this, this legal system is a complete disaster from virtually any point you look at it, whether you look at it from the point of chilling speech, whether you look at it from the point of enhancing debate. The incentive structure it creates is to make speech less free, less uninhibited, and less effective. But that's not all. Let me show you something that was the front page of Arizona's equivalent of the Village Voice. I don't know if you all can see it from here. Gosser? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it. This is the Phoenix New Times. And uh, what it shows, and this is a cover page, again, on the equivalent of the Village Voice for Arizona. And it shows Mr. Clean Elections covered in grime. Now, folks, when, when the equivalent of the Village Voice is describing something that's supposed to be as clean as the wind-driven snow, like this, you know that there might be a problem. And see, the deeper problem with clean elections really is not even the fact that it chills speech, not that even that it makes speech less effective, but it invites a level of government manipulation into the electoral system and opens up opportunities for deceptive gaming of the system that vastly exceeds the corrupting possibilities of private 
campaign financing, that is truly a dangerous system. And let me first hit these concepts point by point, starting with the last. One of the funny things about clean elections is the way money is triggered. And I'm going to play a little game with you. And maybe you're too shy to raise your hands again. Uh, but imagine you were a political action committee, an independent group. And your job was to oppose a privately financed candidate in an election in Arizona. Okay? You hate this privately financed candidate. Now, he's facing five publicly financed candidates, all of whom stand to get matched dollar for dollar for any money you might spend to support that privately funded candidate you hate. So think about this. If you were to spend a dollar opposing the privately funded candidate, it would have no other effect other than that one dollar. But if you were to spend a dollar opposing that privately funded candidate, it would trigger five dollars. One dollar to each of his opposing participating candidates to be used against him. Now, being a clever political consultant, what would you tell your independent group to do to get the most money, the most bang out of their buck? Would you tell them to spend a dollar honestly opposing that traditional candidate? Or would you tell them to spend a dollar with a lukewarm, ineffective message of support that triggers $5 in opposition to this candidate? Well, if you're a rational political consultant, I think you know what the choice would be. And this is where the potential for corruption has been magnified. The potential for undermining the integrity of the election system has been magnified because of Arizona's public financing system. Using this kind of gaming of the system, where through a dishonest tactic of appearing to support someone, you trigger opposition spending through the triggering of matching funds to their opposing candidates, we have seen hundreds of signs called reverse targeting that have happened. Now, the opposition will claim you can't really prove that these, these ineffective, harmful ads were really meant to trigger matching funds to the opposing party. But there is no doubt the system incentivizes it. And it doesn't end there. Imagine you were a self-financed wealthy candidate. And you wanted to run for an election. But you really liked the two participating candidates that were running supposedly against you. And you're really feeling bad about the fact that under Arizona's very low contribution limits, you can't give them more than 800 bucks. But you've got millions that you want to spend to support these two other candidates that you really, really like. But they're publicly financed candidates, and you can't support them directly. So what do you do? Well, you might do what Sam George did which is run as a privately financed candidate for one of three seats in Arizona's Corporation Commission. Spend a million dollars or so, actually he spent about a half a million dollars, in support of his candidacy and trigger a million dollars to his two preferred teamed participating candidates through matching funds. That gentleman managed to make a contribution leveraging public financing that would be simply impossible under Arizona's existing system of campaign finance laws. And in fact, this happened. In the 2008 Arizona election cycle, three gentlemen ran as a solar team. One of them was an independently self-financed millionaire candidate named Sam George, who claimed on his website to have helped draft the Clean Elections Act. 
And he proceeded to spend gobs of money on his candidacy, triggering hundreds of thousands of dollars to publicly financed candidates to be used jointly as part of a coordinated campaign. Now, he didn't win. But ask yourself, do you think he really cared? So this is one of the dirty secrets, actually not so secret in Arizona, about the so-called Clean Elections Act. Even if you believe in public financing of elections, this is not the way to go. Because what this system does is it augments and leverages public financing to do everything that the campaign reform people think is bad about private financed candidates. And it does it on a scale that is far, far greater. I bet you my time's getting short, so uh, let me leave you with the following thought. What could be more dangerous for our system of electoral politics than to have the entity that is supposed to be checked by that process controlling it? There wouldn't be much worse than that. It would be an utter sham. And what the clean election system enables is just about that. Because what goes on in the clean election system is the government is funding the candidates that it later regulates, and our evidence shows lobbies to preserve their existence against repeal statutes that would take away the power of the Clean Elections Commission. This actually happened. So you have the government, if you believe that any sort of finance has control or influence on anyone, you have the government providing all of the financing to candidates, having the ability to regulate them and put them in jail or take away all of their funding if necessary, and then later hiring a lobbyist in a contract of nearly $100,000 to go lobby them when a bill is floated to repeal the Clean Elections Act to prevent that bill from passing. Now, that, gets the, the, that controls the process on the front end at the point of elections. It controls the process on the back end at the point of lobbying. And in the end, you have a system that thoroughly is set up for the government to be the dominant player in the very political process that is meant to check the government. That would be a disaster if the court let it stand. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And that's called the Clean Elections Act. Huh? Um, we're now going to hear uh, uh, a different perspective from David H. Gans, who is the director of the Constitutional Accountability Center's Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Pro Program. He joined uh, the uh, Constitutional Accountability Center after serving as program director at Cardoza Law School's uh, Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy and as an attorney with the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law where he worked with Burt Newborn on appellate briefs in constitutional cases involving the First Amendment and voting rights. Previously, David was an acting assistant professor at NYU School of Law. He has litigated in a wide range of constitutional and civil rights cases. 
He's also served as an attorney fellow for the Center for Reproductive Law and Policy and as a law clerk for the Honorable Rosemary Barquette of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. He's a graduate of Yale Law School, where he served as an editor of the Yale Law Journal, Law Review. Um, his um, academic writings have appeared in the Yale Law Journal, the uh, Boston University Law Review, the Emory Law Journal, George Washington Law Review. Before receiving his law degree, he uh, worked as a paralegal for the American uh, Civil Liberties Union, where he helped Catherine Colbert uh, prepare the briefs and arguments in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. In 1993, David and Mrs. Colbert co-authored an article in the Temple Law Review titled Responding to Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Establishing Neutrality Principles in State Constitutional Law. Uh, David received his undergraduate degree from Columbia University. Please welcome David Gans. Thanks so much for the introduction and for uh, inviting me to come uh, provide a somewhat different perspective. So I'm, I'm here as the, the defender of, of campaign finance regulation, and I'll probably start where none of you expected me to start with Justice Kennedy's opinion in Citizens United. What, did, what is, you know, one of many sort of poetic lines <coughs> Kennedy says is, more speech, not less, is the governing rule. And this is sort of a basic idea um, in First Amendment jurisprudence. The answer to speech that we don't like is not to shut down speech, but to have more of it. And... Um, you know, the sort of part of our understanding of the First Amendment that I think Nick slights is that the Ariz this Arizona statute is actually quite different than um, lots of the kinds of campaign finance cases that have come to the court. Um, and this is a statute that says, yes, we want more speech. We don't want to. We don't want to impose limits. You know, limits have been tried. Though they though didn't they didn't work. So we're going to try a more speech approach. And so I think in that context, um, because Arizona is giving money and saying we're promoting speech, the, the sort of very heavy scrutiny that the court gave us in Citizens United and other cases really doesn't apply. And, and secondly, something else that, that I think Nick sort of cited is, if you look at the Constitution's text and history, um, combating corruption is really at the core of it. Um, we filed a brief in this case, and the brief um, kind of goes through the, uh, what the founders of the Constitution said about corruption. And it's fascinating to note that they were obsessed by it. And on many, many days of the Constitutional Con Convention, they talked about it. Hamilton, George Mason, you know, a number of founders were obsessed with the problem of corruption. They recognized that it was insidious and that government needed, needed many ways to, to get at it. And so I, th so I think that the text and history supports efforts like Arizona's to create an election system free from corrupting influences. So let me hit on both those points. Let me start with, so more speech. Um, you know, usually we have campaign finance cases that are about limits. Citizens United, you know, the best example, this is a limit on Citizens United, there's a criminal penalty for corporations that engage in some form of electioneering. And for the last 40 years, we've seen case and case that are about limits. Limits on spending, limits about contributing money. This is not a case about limits. This is a more speech case, and I think that's extremely important in thinking about not necessarily some of the specifics Nick, Nick, Nick mentioned, but the issue is, are matching funds allowable as an approach, um, or should they be swept off the table aside from some of the specific details about how 
um, how Arizona has legislated since the plaintiff's approach is, you know, there's a fundamental problem with, with the use of matching funds. <coughs> so what are the aspects of Arizona's system? One, so there aren't limits. If you're a candidate who says, look, I don't like the matching system. I just want to raise um, and spend as much as I can to get my message out. There aren't limits on that. A candidate can do that. Instead, Arizona says, we're going to provide public money to encourage broader participation in elections and help create the robust debate that the First Amendment envisions. We're, we're adding to speech, not subtracting from it. And I think the record shows there's been more speech, there's been more political competition, and there's been more debate. One of the, one of the longstanding complaints made about campaign finance regulation is that it just is incumbent protection. And you know, this is a system that I don't think incumbents should like because it means um, lots of people can go in to an election and without having to find an array of, of donors to fund their campaigns, um, they can have a way of, of getting in. And I, in some ways, this for the last 40 years, libertarians have been saying, look, you can't, you can't stop the flow of money. It's no use trying. If you put your hole there, the money comes in here. And you know, in some sense, Arizona took that to heart. And they, you know, they, they recognized, you know, we're not going to, if our goal is, is to enact limits, we're not going to succeed. And the history of how we got uh, this statute, how the, the people of Arizona voted for this measure, I think sort of speaks to that. Um, so let me just a little, a little sort of backdrop on sort of some fundamental principles of the court's campaign, campaign finance law. If we go back to sort of the granddaddy of the court's precedents, Buckley, um, Buckley says more speech is plainly a constitutional approach. Doesn't a, more speech does not abridge the freedom of speech, the words in the text that, that binds us. More speech doesn't violate the First Amendment. So what does Buckley say? Buckley says public financing is a permissible, quote, congressional effort not to abridge, restrict, or censor speech, but rather to use public money to facilitate an enlarged discussion and participation in the electoral process, goals vital to a self-serving principle. And the basic idea is how can it be a violation of the First Amendment to put more money into speech and have more speech so that when we have elections, we have, we have real debate. And so Buckley says public financing furthers, not abridges the pertinent First Amendment values. That's sort of the basic idea. And the basic point of Buckley is there's a huge difference between a statute that tells um, privately financed candidates how they go about um, financing their campaign and one that says, you do what you want. We're going to put government money into, into, the, into elections, um, and we're going to encourage to, we're gonna encourage them to avoid um, getting involved with private contributions. And Buckley says, look, the government has a role here. There's no, there's no rule that the government must be neutral about how candidates fund their campaigns. The government can say, we think it's a good idea. The people of Arizona can say, we think it's a good idea um, to encourage people to look to government funding and get away from the, the game of seeking out private donors. Um, now, why did Arizona do this? And I mean, I think that this history is sort of revealing. One, um, you know, there's an error in some of the debates about, oh, yes, you know, we've been talking about corruption, but it's, there's something not real about it. Well, in Arizona, it was, it was pretty real. You know, in the 80s, there were 80s, and I believe into, no, in the 80s, there were shocking public corruption scandals. Basically, cash for, cash for votes. You know, 
They said, here's the money, support our gambling legislation. They brought gym bags to the meeting and say, fill these coffers. Um, and, you know, I mean, it sort of is a wake-up call to people who think there's no issue of corruption, because the issue of corruption is, was real and undeniable. Um, and, you know, basically fed up with, um, with wealthy supporters and politicians, you know, in bed, people said, you know, we think public financing makes sense. Um, and I think they learned, you know, again, one of the points is they learned limits were not enough. There were strict contribution limits, but they didn't stop bribery. Um, and so rather than trying to keep money out of politics, they said, let's put more money in. Um, and again, so this doesn't entrench incumbents. In fact, I think it, you know, it's a powerful tool that gets at incumbents. Incumbents, you know, incumbents always are going to have the money. Um, this is a way that, that allows challenging. And again, there's no, there's no built-in bias. This isn't, um, this isn't some secret tool that helps Democrats, I think which is a charge sort of leveled against some, um, some campaign finance legislation. You know, if you're, if you're a candidate running for, for, for office in a, um, and the incumbent is a Democrat uh, who, who has organized labor in his pocket and organized labor will come out to, to give that person a lot of money, you know, th there might be some powerful incentive to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to rely on, on a public financing scheme that allows allows me, who might be an untraditional candidate, um, who wants to 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 uh, argue libertarian principles. Um, so there's no, I think there's no uh, there's no bias against any set of candidates. And I think you know the idea is amassing the kind of money to run an election for office is not an easy thing. And there are a lot of people who are fenced out because they, they, they can't summon up the donors. Um, and the, the idea of public financing is let's have a way to get those people in the door and in a way that doesn't involve limiting speech. Um, I mean, again, so, you know, in some level, there's no dispute that public financing is constitutional there. Um, the issue in this case is matching funds and why, you know, let me sort of emphasize some things that are appealing about matching funds. One, it ensures that, that public financing is a genuine option for a wide array of candidates. And the idea is, if the choice is between private financing and public financing, public financing has to be something that I, as a candidate, ex ante, look at and say, okay, I can do this, I can make a robust run, I can make sure there's a robust debate, even though I'm agreeing beforehand, like, I'm not gonna no, I'm not going to be able to spend money. I'm not going to be able to look for contributions. I'm limited by, um, by what the government is, is providing to run the campaign. And on the other hand, so it assures enough for a robust campaign, but it's, not, um, it's also not wasting money because you're targeting it to, you're targeting more money to competitive elections and less money to uncompetitive ones. Um, and I, so, and you know, one of the things I would say is, Arizona was beset with a problem of serious corruption. They they recognized that limits were no good. Contribution limits were not the answer. Um, they didn't stop the bribery, and so they. So I think you know they acted, both consistent with the lessons of the Constitution's text and history that I mentioned before. That corruption is a core constitutional principle, and governments have a wide authority in rooting it out. 
um, and within the traditions of federalism, what Brandeis called laboratories of experimentation. And it, you know, Nick may be right, Arizona has not found the right policy solution, and the way they've enacted this measure is, you know, manipulable and subject to gaming. But, I mean, I think the answer is, is to let experiments continue in, in various locales. This is, this is a rule for Arizona. Ariz you know, people of Arizona wanted this. They can easily, um, you know, they can throw it out tomorrow, whatever the court does. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess our, uh, my organization's theme is, you know, let's take the, the text and history seriously. And what the text and history shows is, you know, preserving the integrity of, of governments, the, the integrity of the electoral process, rooting out corruption are really at, at the core of the Constitution's history. Um, and, that, and that deserves uh, to be much more a factor in the equation. Um, so let me just, so the, I mean, in some sense, the issue, the, perhaps the core issue in the, in the cases goes to, you know, is there a chilling effect? Um, and the plainest view is public financing is fine. What would be fine would just be a lump sum payment. So if Arizona, instead of providing one third up front, said, okay, you know, instead of providing 15,000 up front and then the possibility of another 30, um, over the course of the election, if they said, okay, you'll get all 45,000 up front, as I understand it, that's fine. Um, um, but what they say is you can't do the matching funds because, and, and the point that he made, uh, you know, very eloquently was that, you know, it can't, it can't be if I speak, then, you know, a dollar goes so my opponent can speak. Um, I mean, I think one, you know, I'm sort of skeptical about the claim of the chilling effect. And it seems to me both the lower courts in this case were, um, and you know, I think that should that should give the Supreme Court some pause. I mean, a couple a couple facts to note: one, if if there was this chilling effect, basically you would expect candidate campaigns to spend right up to the trigger and no more. That's not really what you see. Um, I think the evidence in the case basically showed that many plaintiffs didn't even recall if there was a trigger, which suggests that it's not. Be on all and in some sense, this is sensible. You know, candidates are and should be concerned first and foremost about getting their message out. And I mean, and again, you know, he made the analogy to you know the Burger King, McDonald's, and I guess the question is, you know, should we run elections like we run burger joints? And um, you know, I mean, I'm I guess I'm I'm not totally convinced. And as I see what he sees as sort of a huge burden, is I see as the government's saying, let's have a debate. And so, yes, when you spend a dollar, someone else, but the idea is, the, you know, the election is a forum for debate, and providing for more speech and more debate, it seems to me counterintuitive to say, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And, you know, I go back to where I started with, with Kennedy and more speech, but not, and not less. The result of, if he wins, we have less speech. And, I, and doing that in the name of the First Amendment, I think, is wrong. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, David. Now we're going to have a quick five-minute maximum rebuttal from each uh, of our speakers. And uh, you want to do it right from your, uh, where you're sitting there now? OK. All right, this is the government's idea of, of free speech. If you're a privately funded candidate, the government will throw you in jail, 
fine you, or if you are elected, remove you from office unless you fill out a report called a trigger report nearly every day whose function is simply to advise the government of when you've reached the threshold that triggers matching funds to your opponent. And you must file these reports every other day for about the last two to three weeks of the election. And you cannot speak freely unless you fill out these reports as you're spending money trying to project your message for the sole purpose of enabling the government to give subsidies that match you dollar for dollar to your opponent in a competitive race, the whole point of which is to win an election. That's not freedom. That's government telling people to shut up unless you're willing to see your labor commandeered and your effort commandeered to support ideas and candidates that you oppose. Now, I admit the government's not using a red-hot poker in the side of of a candidate and forcing them to do this in that sense, but it it is not free speech when you cannot speak unless you do so in a way that directly benefits your opponent in a zero-sum game. That is a powerful penalty. That is the essence of matching funds. And it's more than theoretical. Another falsehood advanced by people defending the system is that somehow there's been more speech, more speech because of this system. We discovered in the course of our investigations in this case that they were relying on obviously incomplete ridiculously incomplete electronic campaign finance records. And to give you an idea how ridiculous, a 19-year-old intern in our office discovered this when he went and looked online and saw that nearly half of the candidates running for office in 1998 spent no money. This is what the experts supporting clean elections relied on in generating their statistics showing more and more money being spent because of matching funds. They claimed that independent groups spent 3,300% more between 1998 and 2006. Our 19-year-old intern went and looked at the hard copy reports, one entire banker's box of which the Secretary of State just lost, and discovered that it could not possibly have been more than 256%. That's missing an entire banker's box, and it could not possibly have been more than 256%. So the folks defending this law actually under oath made a representation that was obviously false almost tenfold, more than tenfold, regarding the effect of matching funds. Now, the truth is this. Arizona's population grew 32% between 1998 and 2006. There is not a measure of campaign spending, whether you look at any category of candidate, any category of interest group, there is not a measure of spending by privately financed bodies, groups, interests, or candidates that exceeded population growth. The most growth in any spending was 24%, a full nearly 10 points less than the population growth. The truth is, since matching funds has been in place, campaign spending in Arizona has not kept up with population growth substantially, which is a gross deviation from everything else that's been going on across the country. The reality is, is this is a fundamentally powerful deterrent effect, just as the analogy to opening up a burger shop would suggest. Because campaigns are not debating societies. 
campaigns are competitive. There's a winner, there's a loser, and if you're forced to help your opponent through governmental action, that is going to cause you to behave differently than if you weren't forced to support your opponent. So the bottom line is matching funds does not create more speech. But let me just end on this. Let's imagine that the people who supported this system didn't make up all the facts that they rely on. Just imagine they were right. Let's imagine that really the numbers are tenfold what they actually are or more. If the government devises a system that forces people into a veritable Greek chorus of speech, that is not consistent with free, with free speech. That is not consistent with the values of the First Amendment. The First Amendment is not interested in more speech at any cost. It is interested in more free speech, speech not manipulated by the government, not compelled by the government. And there is simply no way someone can say with a straight face, Arizona's matching fund system does not compel speech. Thank you. David? I mean, you know, I'm still left with, you know, the purpose of an election, it may, it may not be a debating society in this, but it is, you know, the idea of the First Amendment is a robust debate. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's the vision of Citizens <coughs> United that, you know, the more speech, the better. And I don't, I guess I have a hard time seeing that it's, there's something unfree about the speech that comes from the government. I mean, the, the, the premise of the statute is, okay, if you don't want to participate in this, you know, spend your money. Um, the government will make sure the other side can respond. We're going to hear from both sides and, you know, we the people in Arizona will be all the richer from, from that. And I don't, um, you know, I mean, we started off with, well, there's a problem with the statute because it uses reporting requirements. Um, but I mean, I guess it seems to me that reporting requirements are sort of, you know, they've been upheld countless times. They are, you know, there's something that's, that are necessary to make the system work. Um, so it seems to me you can't just, the objection can't be that, um, well, so there's no, there's no limit in the actual statute, but there are limits needed to make it workable. So, I, I mean, to me that doesn't, that doesn't sort of undercut the main point. And mostly what I seem to be hearing is um, a viewpoint which is, which is um, perfectly legitimate that you know, we think it's a bad idea for the government to get in, in the funding business here. Um, and certainly there's, you know, there are a lot of people who think, you know, the Supreme Court's cases that basically say, you know, when it comes to the government um, using public funds, um, you know, those cases are awful. The government should have a much, you know, basically shouldn't have a role in doing that. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is there's a, um, you know, decades and decades of cases that say, you know, there's a fundamental difference between, you know, the government acting um, with the force of law, basically saying, commanding you, and these, this is the difference between a limits case like Citizens United in this case, where, where the government is limiting you then, the, the, the restrictions of the First Amendment kick in much stronger, but when it's saying, you know, say what you want, we're just going to make sure the other side 
gets to as well. And again, you know, I come back to the reason Arizona did this was that before it was cash for votes. And they, they, they said, you know, we've had enough of cash for votes. We've had enough of politicians, you know, in league with their wealthy supporters. And it's, I mean, you know, shocking. Almost 10% of the legislature was implicated. And they said, we think there's a value in <coughs> encouraging a wider array of candidates um, to run for money without getting into that petri dish of corruption. Um, and I think that's completely consistent with the First Amendment. All right, now we're going to open it up to you folks for your questions. Please wait till the microphone arrives. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have and to whom your question is directed. Uh, let's start right up there in the back, okay? Thank you. Uh, my question is for uh, Mr. Gans. Uh, my name is Eric identify Wang. yourself, please? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Eric Wang. I'm a campaign finance attorney. Uh, you cited Buckley for the proposition that it's constitutional for the government to um, subsidize uh, candidates. But of course, there, there's a major difference between uh, the program that Buckley was talking about, which is the federal presidential uh, public financing system and the systems that are at play here, like the ones in Arizona. And that's the fact that in the, at the federal level, it's a limited pot of money. For example, in 2008, uh, John McCain was limited to $86 million, while Barack Obama raised and spent more than $400 million. But here in Arizona, it, it seems like it's not just a matter of the government promoting more speech. It's the government trying to equalize speech and also the government trying to drown out speech with respect to a particular candidate. So if, if candidate A spends, you know, one dollar, his, his his opponent gets an equal equal amount, and if he has happens to have five or ten opponents, and if the candidate A is the front runner, then he's he's potentially going to have you know five to ten times the amount of money spent by the government against him as the <coughs> as the amount that he originally spent. So so how would you address this fundamental difference between what Buckley was talking about and what we're talking about here in Arizona? Well, right, of course. I mean, if Buckley addressed this exact system. We wouldn't be here. The Supreme Court wouldn't be hearing the case. I, I mean, there's no, there's no case that addresses matching funds. But the issue is, Buckley says public financing is constitutional. And the issue is, how, how do states, localities go about making public financing workable in a way that doesn't waste money and makes it attractive to candidates? Because if, you, if, if the idea is, sure, you can have public financing, but you can have you know, you can have the presidential system, which is sort of, you know, which is, you know, doesn't really work. Nobody, you know, nobody really uses it. Um, I mean, that's not, that's not much of a system. I guess, you know, the issue is, um, are matching funds, are, the argument here is matching funds are off the table, and all the government can do is just say, well, this is the match you're going to get ex ante. And it just seems to me that, that, that creates two problems. It, it throws money away. So if you have, you know, if you have 25, 20 elections, 10 of them are essentially uncompetitive, and 10 are fiercely competitive. If you say, OK, we're going to give the same lump sum amount in each case in those 10 essentially uncompetitive, it's just like you threw the money in the air, and you've completely wasted it. And I don't, I guess I don't see the value in that. I, I think um, the the idea of, of the matching fund approach is let's put, let's put more money in competitive elections and less in, in non-competitive ones. 
gentleman right here in the. Uh... Hi, uh, thank you. My name is Robert Fromer. I'm an attorney at the Institute for Justice. My question's for uh, Mr. Gans. You said just a minute ago that there's been no public uh, financing case precisely like uh, what we have here, but there has been a campaign finance case quite recently that seems to be pretty close to all fours in which we haven't talked about, which is Davis versus Federal Election Commission. And in that case, the Supreme Court said that a provision of McCain-Feingold called the Millionaire's Amendment was unconstitutional. There, the Millionaire's Amendment said any time a self-funded candidate spent more than a certain amount of money, his opponent would have his contribution limits tripled. And so it seems to be on all fours with this case. How do you think, that, how do you distinguish Davis from what we have here? Well, I mean, don't ask me all the questions. You know, <laughs> Nick is <laughs> all the way from Arizona and he's, uh, I mean, but well, the answer is you can't. The most basic way, which is that it's not a public financing case. I mean, so Davis is a case where you had, you know, two privately financed opponents competing against one another, and the government imposed, you know, a discriminatory contribution limit that said, you know, if candidate A um, spends, you know, reaches into his, you know, you know, bank account and wants to, wants to put in huge amounts because he's a millionaire, thus it's the millionaire's amendment, it's called, you know, then a new set of contribution limits will kick in, and it's, I mean, in some ways you think like, and by the very fact of the way that stop, statute operated, you know, it sort of invalidates itself as an anti-corruption measure. Because once you have, you know, so the, the trigger was once there's been a spending by a millionaire, you have two contribution limits. A higher one that applies to the, the millionaire spender and a lower one that applies to the other candidate. But once you have, once you have the lower contribution limits, it's sort of hard to see why the higher ones are justified as an anti-corruption measure. So, you know, so that, but here I think, that I, you know, I think here the path why this is a, you know, I mean, one, again, I, I started with this, you know, one, I think, you know, the argument here is, oh, we can discount corruption because they have the contribution limits. And I think both the, what the text and history of the Constitution show, which is, a recognition by the framers that corruption was insidious and that governments needed broad authority to root it out, and the facts in Arizona where they tried contribution limits that didn't prevent bribery show why, why a public financing model is a valid measure to root out corruption. So I, I mean, I guess for those reasons, I think, you know, Davis is quite different. Uh, Trevor Burris from the Cato Institute. Uh, this is for you, Mr. Gansbosi, but I'd like to hear uh, everyone. Um, your description of the more speech rationale seems to me to be fundamentally reclassifying our First Amendment jurisprudence into a listener right rather than a speaker right. And if you were to do that, wouldn't you radically change everything that we've already set up about this? And it's all, there's really no case law on this. We have some dicta in some of the media broadcasting cases where they talk about listener rights. But unless you want to do that, I mean, where do the speaker rights come in here? Well, tell me how I, I, I don't quite get the premise. That the listeners have a right to hear more speech, that the listeners have the right to hear competitors' speech, and, and, the, and the people who are speaking are sort of pawns in that game as long as we can get more speech to the listeners' ears. Well, but it's, I mean, part of it is it's the difference between 
the carrot and the stick, you know. So, again, I mean, you know, I guess I don't, I don't accept that there's, that, you know, we're providing more speech at the expense of speakers who are being chilled, you know. You know, it would be, you know, I mean, the idea is when, when the government is providing funding, not imposing limits to encourage more speech, that's, that, I'm not sure that's a, I'm not sure there's, I'm not sure there's any speaker autonomy that's being sacrificed. Well, I mean, if you, if you accept even, you, I know you're skeptical about the chilling effect, but I mean, when you're talking about more speech, are you willing to chill some people as long as there's a more robust debate for the listeners? And if you're willing to do that, are you not fundamentally recharacterizing First Amendment jurisprudence from the beginning? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, first of all, there's no, I mean, there's no principle, even in campaign finance, that says, you know, once one person is chilled, then the statute goes out. And, you know, even in Citizens United, what they say about disclosure is, they say, sure, like, we, we see the chilling effect. Um, you know, and again, last term in Doe versus Reed, they say, we see disclosure can provide a chilling effect. But, you know, the answer is the government can do this. If you've got a real, if you have a, a concrete case where there's a, a special chill on you, um, come to court and prove it up, and we'll give you an exemption. And so, you know, I guess I'm not sure that that the, the chilling effect here kind of gets you to the sort of sort of level of you know strict scrutiny. Um, uh, yes, uh, right here. My question is for you, sir. Uh, my name is David Beer. I'm with the Cato Institute. Um, my question is about he raised the issue of states' rights, and I wonder if you could address that. And also, I'm just wondering, you focused on. The, the right of the candidate to, to spend. What about the individuals who give to candidates? I feel like their speech is really the ones who are ultimately being violated because the form of political expression most used is donating to a candidate that you favor. And if you know you realize that, hey, it's going to someone else, then maybe you wouldn't donate. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in state sovereignty and federalism and the system of dual sovereignty we have. Uh, but the 14th, 14th Amendment settles the question of whether fundamental freedoms can be experimented with. And I happen to believe that this clean election system is a Frankenstein's monster that we need to stop further experimentation with. I mean, th this, this is an outrageous system. As, as one of the questioners pointed out, it, it is designed to drown out speech by people who are doing nothing other than exercise their First Amendment rights to spend money, to raise money, to project a message in a political contest. And it is even worse than that. It's, it's not even so much that it, it, it unleashes a deluge of, of, of resources to uh, publicly financed candidates in, in a way that's directly linked to oppose the exercise of First Amendment rights, which is quite distinct from Buckley. What's worse about it is it really is comprehensively designed to manipulate electoral act, act opportunities uh, in favor of government-funded candidates. And, and let me explain all the different ways, at least a handful of the different ways it does that, just real briefly. Um, one of the most pernicious ways that it manipulates the entire contest to favor government-funded candidates is if you're an independent group 
and you're not going to game the system. You're not going to play games deceptively supporting someone you don't really mean to support, so you trigger money to the participating candidates. If you were an honest, independent group, the only way you can avoid triggering matching funds to people you don't support is if you oppose a privately financed candidate. That's the only safe route for you to go. So if you want to get the actual dollar-for-dollar dollar value, the value undiluted of your speech, you have one option as an independent group, and that is to oppose traditionally financed candidates. Any other option potentially results in a match to dilute your speech and to undercut the purpose of you exercising your First Amendment rights. That one feature fundamentally manipulates this electoral co uh, contest in a way to favor government funded candidates. And when you step back and you realize just with that one piece of the puzzle, the government can shift the balance of the contest between candidates so fundamentally, and you realize that the Clean Elections Commission has spent nearly $100,000 every year for the past three years on a high-powered lobbyist to go into the legislature and protect its interests and block legislation aimed to repeal their existence. If you don't see the beginnings of a closed loop where the very system that is supposed to be keeping the government in check has been co-opted and controlled by the government in a way that is fundamentally dangerous and subversion and a subverting of all of the principles of Republican government, then I suggest you have your blinkers on. Now, in terms of contributions, um, you know, all, all I can say is this. It is a false dichotomy between contributions and spending. Unfortunately, the dichotomy exists. It's exists since Buckley. One of the most pernicious ways we see the uh, impact of matching funds uh, being affecting spending, no matter whether it's directly targeted contributions or not, just to back up, in the general election phase in Arizona system, matching funds are triggered by contributions over a certain threshold, as opposed to spending over a certain threshold. Now, when candidates know that contributions are going to trigger matching funds and their donors know that contributions are going to trigger their matching funds, what that tends to do is it makes them more hesitant because it's kind of like this. You don't want to be pushing a snowball up the hill and then lose the energy that you need to get it over the top of the hill and have it fall back on you. And so candidates, when they're thinking out their spending plans, they're thinking about how am I going to fuel those plans with enough contributions to keep it going? How do I choose strategies that are sustainable? If they fear that their contributors are going to be chilled because of the threat of matching funds, that fundamentally alters what they feel safe in spending money on for fear of the counterattack that will come from the other side. And so there really is no way to, to separate in the decision processes of a candidate the impact of matching funds on contributions versus the impact of matching funds on spending. Either way, spending is fundamentally and directly impacted and chilled because candidates know that rational people have to take into account the fact that they could be triggering money to things they do not support, which diminishes the value in a competitive contest of their spending or their fundraising. Okay, um, Mr. Michael. I'm Michael Wilt with the Cato Institute. Um, I just have a general question first for you, Mr. Gans. Would you support this uh, system on the federal level? Um, I mean, I would, I would certainly seriously consider it on the federal level. Do you mean for congressional races? Uh, yeah, as a, as a policy 
do you think it would be a good policy on the federal level? That's just a general question that I wanted to ask before. I mean, I, I would generally support it. I mean, obviously, you know, the details matter. Okay. And, and the, the main question that I want to ask is, um, I'm not familiar with the Arizona State Constitution. Is there a provision in the Arizona State Constitution that gives the uh, legislature the power to uh, provide matching funds? And secondly, since you would support the federal um, well, policy, I mean, is there a provision in the U.S. Constitution that gives the government the power to provide matching funds for well, elections? So, I mean, so I'll, let me, when I say I would support it, I think it's, you know, I think it's constitutional. I think it, you know, it makes sense for the reasons I've discussed. In terms of Arizona, you know, he is much more expert on the Arizona Constitution. But the legislature didn't enact this. The people did through initiative. In terms of whether this could be enacted on a federal level, the answer is the elections clause gives Congress the authority to, you know, regulate the, the uh, time, place, and manner of elections. And manner includes the regulation of campaign finance. That's why we have federal campaign finance regulations. And so I understand everyone accepts that that Congress has authority under the Constitution to enact it. The issue in, in the cases vis-a-vis -vis federal campaign finance legislation is, does it conflict with the First Amendment? But there, I, I don't understand there, there being a serious, is there actually power in the Constitution? Well, is there historical evidence that, as you said, Hamilton and George Mason and, and Madison were, were concerned about corruption? Is there any historical evidence that when they drafted the elections clause that they intended for at least the Congress to be able to have that power to essentially equalize elections? I mean, um, it's been a while since I've looked at the text and history of the elections clause. The, you know, what the sense that I got, and a lot of it is in the word manner, was that you know, Congress would have pretty wide authority when it comes to setting the ground rules of elections for Congress. You know, when it comes to elections for the states, um, that's a different question. And, that, and to the extent Congress does that, it's usually um, enforcing either the 14th, 15th, or other uh, voting amendments. Okay, we're going to take just one more question and then we'll break. Right here, this gentleman. I wanted to ask both of you, but particularly you, sir. Uh, this is, I'm sorry, I'm Edward Roeder from Sunshine Press. You've spoken of the impact of the law as though money were so fungible that free speech is merely a, an issue of quantity. And the whole idea of a robust debate is that quality creeps in there and that would suggest that even if candidate A's spending triggers more money for candidate B, if you believe that candidate A makes the stronger case, he would likely prevail with more debate. No? Do you, do you view the money as... Let me rephrase you. I think this is an interesting point. Your argument is, won't the marketplace of ideas in a microcosm, which you are presuming is an electoral contest, wouldn't that operate better with with more speech, or at least not be hindered with more speech, since in the end, truth wins out? My first response to that is, the premise of the marketplace of ideas generating truth is that it is a free marketplace of ideas, one that is not artificially ginned up with government subsidies to favor someone 
who otherwise wouldn't be speaking at the volume they're at. And I also have to emphasize that a marketplace of ideas concept is being compressed in a very short timeline for most comp competitions at the electoral level. There, I don't think you can assume that the best kinds of debates or truth searching is going to even be possible in an electoral context. Sure, it will tend to be something where more freedom and more speech will generate a better result. But there is no necessary belief, there's no reason to believe that government-forced, government-subsidized speech pumped into this compressed time frame where people have an advantage just based on name recognition often um, is going to generate a, a better candidate even over the long run. I, I don't think you can make that case. I don't think you can make the opposite case. It's just a different sort of situation. I think the better thing to do is to keep the marketplace of ideas free and unmanipulated. We know that on balance that will tend to generate a better outcome. But any marketplace that's not regulated isn't free. In order to have a free marketplace, it has to be regulated. And if you would simply allow the bigger players to dominate, you're not going to have a free market. And if, if your idea of the marketplace of ideas is that it goes to the people who can pay more. Yeah. Aren't you speaking about an equal marketplace rather than a free marketplace? No, a, a free market. Where, where, where you're going to have bigger players and smaller players, it can still be a free marketplace. Yes, it can be if there, are, if if the decision is made by the marketplace of ideas and not by the weight of the uh, yeah. the speakers or the amplifiers of the expressors. Yeah, I, I, let me just, if I could, first of all, we're, you're also one of the concerns I have is you're losing uh, track of one of the purposes of an electoral contest, which really isn't a truth-seeking purpose. The most fundamental purpose of an electoral contest is to keep a check on government. And so it matters how the system is manipulated and who's manipulating it. And it actually, I would argue, the founders made the fundamental policy choice that it is far worse in the long run to have government engaged in and manipulating the electoral contest than the worst of all possible worlds that might happen in the private sector. That's the policy choice that exists in the First Amendment. The government shall not be a, a bridging freedom of speech. And a bridging freedom of speech means that you can't have inhibited, un, you know, you can't have speech that is inhibited, that people are fearful of exercising their rights, that people think they'll be punished if they exercise their rights, or that they're forced to file trigger reports under penalty of going to jail or losing your office that will be used to assist their competitors in that competition. You can't have that kind of fear, deterrent, and chilling effect and respect freedom of speech. Well, we'll see on Monday whether the Supreme Court is able to handle these issues as well as our two speakers have today. Let's break now for a reception upstairs, but first let's give our speakers a good round of applause. David, thank you.